you can be the brain behind the breakthrough, whether you have a neurologic disorder or a healthy brain. There's a big study going on called the Brain Initiative that will revolutionize the way we learn about the brain by identifying new tools and doing all these crazy things that are going to make us so much smarter about brain research. That's Tish Neville talking about how your brain can be studied to identify treatments and cures for all kinds of brain disease. I'm Marian Shuck, your host for Let's Talk Hope, a podcast devoted to sharing stories and turning tragedies into triumphs. I'm delighted to have with me today the CEO Brain Donor Project as she breaks down the why brain donation is so vital. Tish, tell me a little bit about your sister, your other co-founder, and the legacy that you've created through the Brain Donor Project for your father. You bet. So my sister Annie is my best buddy anyway, and she's also the brilliant, smart, and talented half of this equation. She and I decided a while ago, uh, it was about a year after my father died, that we need to help the National Institutes of Health a little bit because they hadn't had a chance to do the public relations part of what they were embarking upon. And basically, the NIH had gotten into the brain banking business just a year or so before my dad died because so many neuroscientists were coming to them saying it was very difficult for them to get their hands on donated human brain tissue, which is the most precious thing they need to get us to the next set of breakthroughs in neuroscience. The NIH reached out and contracted with six different brain banks across the country to retrieve, store, prepare for lab use, and distribute this tissue. Well, about a year later, my dad died of Lewy body's dementia, and we were able to donate his brain for neurologic research, but it was very complicated because this new structure of brain banks was brand new. All of our friends were asking us, wait a second, you donated your dad's brain for research? We didn't even know that was a thing. How did you do it? Can you help us do it? And we were like, well, it's a little complicated right now. Let's see if we can help first. So we reached out to the NIH and asked if we could help them with some public education resources and a way to simplify the process. And then so a year later, we um, we launched uh, the Brain Donor Project expressly to raise awareness of this critical need and to make it easy for people to sign up and make plans to become a brain donor when they die. Tish, I don't want to sound like I'm asking a dumb question. But most people associate brain donation and neurological diseases with playing in sports, either the NFL or boxing, something where it creates a traumatic brain injury. But you mentioned that your father had dementia. Can you tell us about some other neurological diseases that your brain donor project seeks to help? That's a great question because you're right. People do assume that. And then I'll talk to you about the other big assumption when we're finished here. But basically, any kind of neurologic disease or disorder, and if you think about it, Marion, one in five of us suffers from one of them. It's clearly more than one person in everybody's circle, whether it's a, a neurodegenerative disease like the dementias or Parkinson's or ALS severe mental illness, 
autism. It's a big problem because our chances of being diagnosed with any kind of neurologic disorder seem to increase as we age. And in America, at least, we're all living longer than ever. So you can see where this is headed. The NIH needs all kinds of brain tissue to help you know, advance the science of brain disease. But more importantly than that, they also need what we call unaffected control brains or people who don't have a neurologic disease. If you think about it, they're needed in every single study for comparative science. So it's not just a, a case of, of people who have any kind of disorder. You're right about the football thing. It has brought a lot of this to light you know, in terms of the need for brain donation and people associate it with that, but the need goes far beyond um, any kind of brain injury. You know, you brought up something else that made me, um, I'm really glad we're talking when you said this, I hope this isn't a dumb question. A, there are no dumb questions. But B, the problem with brain donation is there's a huge list of misconceptions. And the first one is, Everyone thinks it's part of organ donation. Everyone does. Almost everybody I talk to is like, wait a second, I checked the box on my, or I've got my, you know, the box checked on my driver's license, so I'm good to go with brain donation, correct? And we're like, no, you're not. It's not routinely a part of organ donation. Brains are not transplanted and likely won't be uh, any time in our lifetimes. It's a separate process. To be a brain donor, you need to make separate arrangements with a brain bank, and that's that's more of what we do. But you wouldn't believe how many people automatically assume, sure, you know, it, it's an organ, and it's organ donation, so it's all the same thing, right? Absolutely. And people ask all the time, but we get a lot, people ask us about research, right? How can I also do research and organ donation? So I think one of the things that will be helpful is if you can talk about the process, if there is a process between organ and tissue donation and someone who wanted to donate their brain, and then also someone who wanted to donate their body to research after all of these steps have happened, because obviously, organ donation has to happen first. Right. And that's, that's a lot of coordination. And you got that right. <laughs> it's like we tell everybody, obviously, if there's a life-saving organ donation that can take place, that takes precedence over everything. As you, you and I both know, a person has to die in a certain way in order for their organs to be viable for processing for donation. But if a person wants to be an organ donor and a brain donor, and we're not in a time crunch situation because it's not a life-saving organ, but other parts that can be used for donation and manufacturing of medical appliances and things like that, other things that donated tissue is used for. It's totally possible to coordinate all that in a timely fashion and make sure that all the tissues that are being donated are done properly. So it's not a one or the other type of thing in terms of being able to make that choice. The experts go in there with the donor's intent in mind and remove what they can according to the person's wishes. The body donation thing is a little complicated, but it is doable. And I can speak from experience because we did that with my dad. Um, the tricky part is to find a body donation program that will accept the body once the brain has been removed for neuroscience research elsewhere. Some do, some don't. I, I don't see a lot of logic in it. 
And the anatomical donation programs don't necessarily put that information on their website. So you have to call to find out. And then the most important thing, and this is not my bias talking because the scientists all agree, that the brain is more important for neuroscience research than the body is for anatomical research at this point. They need the brain tissue so bad, and so many people are already willing to be body donors that it's not as critical of a need. I don't think I'm speaking out of school when I say that. So what we ask people to do is register to become a brain donor first, and we can talk the details on that later if you'd like, but then try to find an anatomical body donation program in your part of the world because they don't transport bodies around for that purpose. So the trick is to do like an online search for body donation in blank. And then you'll get some results that are mainly associated with medical schools or teaching hospitals. And then you need to call them and ask them if if that is the case, if they will accept a body once the brain has been removed for neuroscience study elsewhere. If they will, then you register with both programs, let them know about each other. And then when the time comes, the family makes a phone call to both of those organizations and they coordinate the transport and everything that has to happen. When my dad died, we were in northern Cincinnati and we had been able to arrange. So it was like almost halfway between downtown Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio. So it wasn't like LA or New York are the most sophisticated markets in the country, which is my way of saying, I I don't know why some people do this and why some people don't, but um, they were wonderful. They came, my father died at home. They came and picked him up from the body donation program and took him back to their facility. The brain bank then sent a recovery specialist there to that program where they removed his brain through the back of the head, which is standard, so as not to be disfiguring. And then they shipped his brain, in that case, from Ohio all the way to L.A., and then they kept his body at the body donation program. They can't keep them quite as long because embalming doesn't take place before the brain has been removed, but they can still do it for six months. And so, you know, we felt really great in that My dad was a real practical guy. He wanted to be as useful and helpful as he could in his lifetime. So we know that he would feel great about having all his parts go to help when he was finished with them. So that was a neat thing for us to do. Great. And Tish, can you tell us, if it's not too personal, if you can tell us how old your father was and what when he passed, and but can you let us know What are some of the requirements to being a brain donor, if you will? Yeah, happy to. So my dad was only 78. And, you know, you can ask me anything you want about him because I love talking about that man. I feel his presence so much in my work. And he was just a great guy, a great father, a guy who worked his way out of poverty. He and my mother both and just built a great life for all of us. And I have nothing but the fondest of memories for him. It's not real hard to be a brain donor, actually, Marion. The only tricky part is getting the process started in advance, if at all possible. So in my dad's situation, we knew he already wanted to be an anatomical donor. And so when we learned about the Lewy bodies, um, we you know, started researching that and kept finding out all these things. 
researchers needed that tissue at the time because they thought they were onto something. It's not complicated to do it, and there's not a whole lot of requirements. The easiest way to get registered now, just so you know, is, is to go to our website, which is braindonorproject.org. And there's a little rectangular button in the upper right-hand corner that says brain pre-registration. So that's where a future donor and or his or her family could go to start the process. It's a very brief online form. First question is, are you doing this for yourself or someone else? And the second question is something to the effect of, are we in a bit of a hurry? The rest of it's just contact information and then room for a diagnosis at the end. And based on that, we connect the family with the brain bank that makes the most sense for that person. The only real requirements, you know, we can only take brains from inside the U.S., which was a problem when we were in National Geographic, because as you can imagine, we got questions from all over the planet. While the Neurobiobank of the NIH does supply tissues to scientists all over the world, we can't accept brains from outside, just as an organ donation, as I'm sure you know, it's, it takes too long. That post-mortem interval, it takes too long. But other than that, there are some stipulations about systemic infectious disease If there is one in play at the time of death, then the brain banks have to be concerned about contaminating the lab. So that would be a decline factor. Certain Alzheimer's cases um, have become decline factors, mainly because we're seeing so much dementia now that researchers have become kind of selective about the cases that mean the most to them. So we have to follow up with a questionnaire to make sure the person's a good candidate. But that's about it. There was a time when the brain banks weren't taking brain cancers because there were just so many different kinds of things. And it made the most sense at the time to match up researchers with whatever kind of tumor it was. But then we realized that researchers were looking into the tissue surrounding the area that was treated in the brain. So they were going to need that tissue to see what radiation and chemo was doing to the surrounding tissue in terms of how it impacted the rest of brain function. So that opened that up. So there are very few restrictions now. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'd like to go back a bit because you mentioned earlier about brain donation versus the anatomical. And just right now in this period, you know, studying the brain is a little bit more important. And so I'm wondering, do you have to have a neurological disorder to be a brain donor? Is there any impetus in understanding people who don't have neurological disorders versus those that do? The control brains, the normal undiseased brains, are in very high demand for several reasons right now. It's um, interesting that you ask that because I speak to a lot of patient advocacy groups about the importance of donating one's brain, especially if you have a certain disorder and especially if you've been a part of any studies prior to death because that preclinical research is, is so important. However, Now I'm talking to all those groups saying, please talk to your family and friends too, because we need their support with their non-affected brains. And there's, there's two big reasons. One, they've always been in demand since they're needed for every single study. 
One control brain can be used in dozens and dozens of studies based on the different parts of the brain that are needed, their demographic match with the other subjects in the study. So they're terribly valuable just in general. But the second and most urgent reason right now is because there's a big study going on called the Brain Initiative, and it was launched during the first Obama administration giant multi-stakeholder project that will revolutionize the way we learn about the brain by identifying new tools and doing all these crazy things that are going to make us so much smarter about brain research. They're entering a phase of that study where they're going to atlas every single cell of the human brain. For that, they will need a significant supply of these non-diseased, non-affected control brains, and they will need them across every demographic axis. So think about that, all kinds of, all across the age span, all races and ethnicities, all kinds of these brains. The problem is, no matter how much we work with say, medical examiner's offices or coroner's offices to make sure that we can ask people about donating a brain when the time comes. My biggest fear is that not enough people know about brain donation, that it will make that ask at a particularly traumatic time too difficult to fully consider. I mean, think about it. You know, in many cases, It could be possible that the first time a person hears about brain donation, what is that, is when they're being asked to consent to donating the brain of a loved one, and they haven't even gotten their arms around the fact that the person is gone. Not only is that cruel, you know, that's just, that's so difficult, but secondly, you get to ask that question once, and, you know, if it's too much, it's too much. My biggest thing right now is to make sure, is to try and make sure that at least people are mildly familiar with the concept, or at least know that it's critical to advancing science before they get asked that question. Absolutely. As an organ procurement organization, Gift of Hope is charged with obviously going in to talk to families on the worst day of their lives. Uh, we're at the hospital talking to families, trying to either honor their loved one's wishes if they've consented to donation or having a difficult conversation uh, in, a, as you mentioned, a very traumatic situation. So we are federally mandated to go into the room and talk to families. When does the conversation actually happen? Is it in the hospital? Is it after the hospital? Help me help us understand that a little bit. Sure. So it's it's a little different. You know, in some markets, we really rely on organ procurement organization partners to help make that ask on behalf of brain donation too. And it is in those cases that we are so incredibly grateful for the partnership. With brain donation, it's a little bit different. Regardless of where the person dies, it is incumbent upon the family to notify the brain bank of the registrant's death. So assuming a person is properly pre-registered, then let's say it's me. 
and I pass. Then my family knows because I've shared my wishes with them that I have registered to become a brain donor. And after I die, they have to call my brain bank as quickly as they can, ideally within the hour. The brain bank has already supplied a 24-7 phone number, and I have given that to them. So that's their job, and they know it. So they call the brain bank. The brain bank then coordinates with, it depends on what the plan is. If there's going to be a funeral or there's a funeral home involved, then the brain bank coordinates with the funeral home. If the person's going to be cremated, the crematories often have this facility as well. But the bottom line is the brain bank identifies a medical or mortuary location coordinates the body to be moved there, and then sends a pathologist or recovery specialist there to do that recovery. I talked about, um, as in with my dad, where they remove the brain through the back of the head and then ship it to the brain bank. Now, a couple of beautiful things about this. One, because we support only the brain banks of the NIH that I talked about earlier, there's absolutely no cost to the family to donate a loved one's brain. So the NIH considers this tissue so important, they reimburse everybody involved along the way. The second thing that is valuable is if the family requests it of the brain bank, the brain bank will provide a really important report, and it's called a summary of neuropathological findings. So with many neurodegenerative diseases like the dementias and ALS and Parkinson's, the diagnosis that comes before death is a very well-educated guess. Um, Not to diminish any of the work that's gone into it, but those diseases can't be definitively diagnosed until there has been a post-mortem exam. And so like in my dad's case, they highly suspected Lewy body's dementia as they can now because of uh, specific symptoms and behaviors. But they don't know for sure until they get in there and see exactly what kind of proteins are apparent in the brain or amyloid plaque that's at play or whatever. That confirmation of that and the report that we received is valuable because once we know more about the genetic underpinnings of these diseases and what sorts of treatments may be available in the years ahead, that'll be critical information for the family to have. So that, that's a huge benefit of brain donation. And the other benefit And I know this sounds corny, but it's real. And and I know it's as real with brain donation as it is with organ donation, Marion. There is something so comforting in the face of a great loss and knowing that some future family may have to suffer less, you know, that you're doing something to change lives that may not be apparent in this case for a generation or two down the road. But at least it does something to make you feel a little bit better about what everybody has to go through. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned genetic markers because in organ and tissue donation, the conversation today is marginalization of underrepresented communities, medical mistrust for communities of color. In brain donation, are you seeing challenges with people of color willing to donate their brains? Or is this something that you guys systematically work on? 
Yeah, we do systematically work on it. And we have to across the spectrum in science, research, and medicine. Everyone knows there are tremendous health inequities at play to start with. But secondarily, there are many groups in America that just haven't been well represented in research. And so, you know, all my scientist friends are telling me until we have the proper representation that's needed in science to study things, the science is not complete. So we have to work on better ways to engage especially communities of color, to be more involved in research. That mistrust is there, and some of it for very legitimate reasons. The trick I'm told is that we have to really engage in relationships with the folks that we want to educate. can't be a transactional thing. It needs to be a, a solid, coordinated partnership with the communities at play to help people understand why this helps their own communities. It's across the board in science. I know it is an organ donation and, and brain donation, too. There's just not enough diversity in what's out there. But we're working on that really hard. Right. The, the big question that I have to ask, because it's very important to a lot of communities, a lot of audiences, is what happens if I donate my brain? Do I have to pay? Does my family have to pay? And... What is the process for understanding what happens afterwards? The pay part is no. When you're working with the brain bank of the NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health, and those are the only ones that we support, there is no cost to the family to do this. So you don't have to worry about setting something up in advance or having some kind of special fund prearranging that's not necessary. So there's not a money factor or money situation at all. And then the logistics are when we talked about how the pathologist or recovery specialist goes in and they remove the brain and then help see that it's shipped to the proper brain bank. At that point, once that is done, then the body's released back to the family to proceed with whatever burial, funeral, cremation plans have been made. So this happens in a way that it doesn't slow down any sort of funeral or viewing that the family may have planned. And as an organ donation, it is as well accepted by, you know, all the major religions as something that's considered a great manifestation of those teachings. So not a problem there with the religions. And you mentioned, uh, by the way, I had a chance to view your TED Talk, Your Brain Should Be Going Places, and it was pretty phenomenal, very educational. So I'm glad you were able to come on today. You talked about that families can receive a summary of the findings. How did that help you recognize that you did the right thing for your dad? For so many families, that's a big motivator to do brain donation. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Whatever, whatever is the reason behind someone wanting to do this, whether it's to advance science or to know what happened with their person, I get it. And those are all acceptable reasons. You know, there are people who've had, for example, dementias running through all kinds of generations in their family. And in those kinds of situations, it's imperative that scientists try to understand what's going on in that bloodline. Anything that we can do to help not only advance science, but 
give the family some information about what's going on within their own kinship is going to be super critical. It was important to us just to know for sure what was going on with my dad. And when we got that report, we were like, wow. Well, they said they thought it was Louis Bodies. We didn't know it happened to be so pervasive um, in his brain by the time they did they did that report, um, and by the time he passed, you know, because there's no way to know. But so many families have told us that a this brings brings a lot of comfort to them, but but b they wanted to know for their own children and their children's children exactly what was going on, so that we could pay attention to what's happening with the research help gear resources in that direction. When Robin Williams died, it took forever for when he was still alive for his now widow to get him properly diagnosed. And that's part of the problem is so many of these dementias and things look similar. But in his situation, if they had been able to even suspect what it was earlier, there are some things that while they don't cure the disease, um, they can prolong quality of life until the person's gone. So that's why her big thing after she learned from his postmortem report that it was Lewy body's dementia, her big focus is on trying to get some kind of diagnosis as soon as possible so that these kinds of treatments can be considered. And I understand why. It has to be comforting to know whether you have genetic or hereditary issues that could, as you mentioned earlier, play a part in future generations or just you and your sister and trying to figure out, are there things you could be doing to have better brain health? Is there things that you can do now with your doctors to understand that you may have a predisposition to a neurological disease. Is that ever a factor when you get the results? Does that help the families in any way? Yes. And I think it will more so once we know more about these diseases. With so many diseases, we've heard a lot of talk about things like gene editing, where they can actually isolate the gene. And if there is a mutation or something about the gene that does predispose someone, as you mentioned, the day is going to come in the future, hopefully not too distant future, where that can be modified in a person in such a way that that disease won't be a factor. They're already there or almost right there with some really devastating diseases like Cunnington's disease, which has no cure. And it, it, you know, a loved one just deteriorates over time and you have to just sit and watch it. It's the most horrible thing. But scientists have figured out exactly where the genetic problem lies, and they are so close to being able to fix that gene in utero. So they can actually, you know, they're, they're very close to being able to eradicate that disease within a family, which is mind-boggling. And it also tells you that if they can get that close to, to where they need to be in terms of the genetic underpinnings. I can't help but get excited about where our future lies as long as they get enough of this tissue to do what they need to do. Well, most definitely, because you mentioned that donors could be prenatal to 104 years old. And so that's a wide age gap to be able to understand the effects of brain disease. How did they come to that sort of age gap? And what do you hope to learn 
between such a wide gap? Well, a couple things. I'm glad you brought that up because there's a couple things. First of all, when people talk about really old, the super elderly people, one of the things they're studying right now is how some people live to such a very advanced age without a cognitive decline. You know, so scientists really want to understand what keeps a person's brain so healthy for so long. And I hope they find that out before, like now. I'd like to know now before I get any older. <laughs> okay. So so that's fascinating. And, you know, people are just so generous. They have, you know, the way that they want to help somebody else, you know, on their way out the door, so to speak, is, you know, it just really restores your faith in humanity some days. And there is nothing that's more demonstrative of that than when we hear from a couple who, and the mother is carrying a baby that they know will not be viable. They know the baby will not be viable. And, you know, it may live for a little while after birth or a little while longer, but they know that the condition of the baby is such that they want to prearrange to donate that baby's brain so that whatever this particular problem is, they'll learn from it. And they have talked to us about how they know it will help them through this horrible thing they're about to go through you know, the death of a a newborn, to think that it will advance education about that disease. And I tell you what, I get goosebumps just talking about these people. They are heroes beyond anything I've known. It's interesting. My husband died three years ago, and he was a tissue donor. And I just got a report that his tissues are all over the world. I think 20 uh, tissue samples are in Australia, a couple are in London, and quite a few here in the United States. And so it's wonderful because you think that, to your point earlier, that you're giving somebody a chance to do something that they wouldn't have been able to do without this gift. And so I just want to you know, it's been amazing talking to you about the Brain Donor Project, but I'd like you to sum it up. If I was someone, obviously I read all about you. I I love Ira Flacto. I looked at the TED Talk, but can you sum it up for me? If I was someone who had no idea about brain donation, what are the simple factors that I would need to know to make a decision to be a brain donor? First of all, Think about, this is how I like to to pose it to people. We give a lot of thought, especially late in our lives, to what we want our legacy to be, what we're going to do with our stuff, what we're going to do with our money, what we're going to do for certain people. But it's just as important to think about this most precious of organs that you have because of the life you have lived and how you can pull the most value out of that at a time when you don't need it anymore. So I I ask people to think of it that way. You're in a unique position to give an incredibly valuable gift. If people would just consider making plans in advance, most importantly, talking to your family about your wishes, because they're the ones that'll carry it through for you. And then go ahead and start the process of becoming a brain donor. Please talk to people about it. If you're a person who has a disorder where you already know you're going to do this because it's important to advance the knowledge of your disease, lean on your family and friends and tell them we need them too. This is a lovely, selfless, important, 
and critical gift to future generations and the health of all of us down the road. Tish, I want to thank you so much for that, but I really want to thank you for being a guest and reaching out because, as you know, we talk about organ and tissue donation here and the importance of that, but I'm always open to learning different things. And so this has just been fascinating. I would encourage folks to look at Your Brain Should Be Going Places. It is an incredible TED Talk, and Tish just does a great job with that. And thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Hope. We encourage you to start the conversation about organ and tissue donation with your loved ones today and make your wishes known. You can register to become a donor on giftofhope.org if you like what you've heard today. We hope that you'll listen again wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Hello, Tina Montgomery, Supervisor for Community Outreach. In my role, I'm responsible for raising awareness and educating the community about organ, eye, and tissue donation. Daily, I'm asked a lot of questions about the donation process and how does it work. So we're going to spin the wheel, answer some questions from our audience. So we're going to give the wheel a big spin and it's going around and around and around and stop some question number 80. I've heard about tissue donation, but what tissues can be donated? Donated tissues such as skin, bone, and heart valves can dramatically improve the quality of life for recipients and help save lives. One tissue donor can heal the lives of more than 75 people. Donated human tissues can be used in many surgical applications, saving and healing lives on a daily basis. Tissue donation can benefit patients in a number of serious or life-threatening medical situations, including saving patients with severe burns, allowing athletes with torn ligaments or tendons to heal and regain strength, restoring hope and mobility to military personnel who have been injured in combat, and repairing musculoskeletal structure such as teeth, skin, and spinal components. Each year, approximately 58,000 tissue donors provide life-saving and healing tissue for transplant. Approximately 2.5 million tissue transplants are performed every year. Thank you again for that question. It was an awesome question and I'm happy that I'm able to answer it. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Hope. Please, we encourage you to start the conversation today about organ and tissue donation with your loved ones and make your wishes known. You can learn more about donation and register to be a donor at giftofhope.org. Let's Talk Hope was produced by Rivet. And if you'd like to hear more great podcasts, please visit rivet360.com.